This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Andrew Peake. He is the co-founder and CEO at Delphia, a membership-based investment collective where people pool their data to gain access to exclusive investment strategies. After selling his previous startup to Shopify, Andrew purchased a Toronto-based research lab with the mission of helping people derive benefit from their data. He went on to steer the lab's novel predictive methods toward the forecasting of capital markets, partnering with some of the top minds in quantitative investing to form Delphia, which is the company he's at the helm of today. In this one, we chat about Andrew's experiences and passion for predicting the future, the idea of investing with one's data, Delphia's impressive near 80 million in funding to date, and Andrew's experience raising venture capital, his entrepreneurial experiences, his background, and so much more. And with that intro said and done, let's get right to the show. Here is my great conversation with Andrew Peake. What's the latest at Delphia? We're completely shuffling the app experience right now. Mm-hmm. So I would say historically, we were trying to teach people about you know AI investing or quantitative investing. And I think we took that as far as one can take it before we realized that the average person is not going to be able to wrap their head around it in a meaningful way. And so we are actually repositioning the entire thing to essentially tell the story of like data first. So what it means to invest with your data and the portfolio construction and how the AI works and and opening up an investment account is all kind of moving further down the funnel. And we're going to be giving people a way to explore the data really early in the process. So kind of like a give to get, right? So if you are debating buying Netflix stock and you want to see Netflix credit card data or sales data from our credit card data, you'll be able to do that provided you're also contributing to it. You know, this sort of resonates with me because when I was doing some research on the company, I have to admit, I didn't really understand it as a consumer. I didn't know what it meant to invest with my data and how that worked in practical terms. So, I mean, how do you explain this business to your grandmother, let's say? This has been the lifelong challenge of Delphia. I just would tell her we're an asset management business and there's many of those. We just happen to manage two types of assets your dollars and your data. And the reason we manage your data is because it allows us to improve the return on the dollars. We look to the data to make better predictions about where the market is going. You are the world's first, as I understand it, in this space doing this. Is that true? No, that's true. In fact, it's been substantiated up and down the valley in New York and everywhere else. Everyone to a person has said, I've never seen this before. So many people see so much promise in this thesis. What was your thesis going back to the beginning? The research that underpins Delphia goes back a decade. It's actually two different branches of research, two different teams. But Delphia as an idea, as a concept, I'll say in 2014, actually, I discovered the first research lab, which was called Vox Pop Labs. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to help people use their data to their benefit. So their whole premise was your data is very powerful. It can help you with a lot of things if you knew how to harness it. We're going to help you harness it to make an election decision. And so they built this long form survey tool called Vote Compass. And if you answered 50 questions reliably, it would give you a really informed articulation of your alignment to the different candidates that were running in an election. And in fact, people loved it so much that they would often tweet or share their result on Facebook. Mm -hmm. It was like this beautiful infographic. 
And that allowed the lab to combine essentially like a behavioral footprint of data, you know, like your Twitter posts or your Facebook posts with this sort of profile dimension, this stated profile dimension that was, you know, declared really reliably because the user wanted the right answer. And that approach resulted in them being able to forecast the election outcome better than any local polling agency, no matter where in the world they were operating. Mm -hmm. They actually called Brexit 10 days before the vote. And so that's when I became intrigued by people using their data to their advantage. And I guess you could say when I realized that there was a way to do better prediction than a Google and a Facebook, you just had to work hand in hand in alignment with the individual. It took me three years to then take the methods of that lab and to find the appropriate context to apply them. I didn't think that the elections business was going to be a very big business, but the same methods can help you predict markets. Hmm. And so that's uh, 2017 is when Delphia started to head in that direction. Would you have considered yourself a pretty sophisticated retail investor at the time? Like what was your mindset as a consumer? I think I'm pretty average in that regard. I like to say I've been burnt on all the obvious things, right? So I've, you know, dabbled with options and lost money, Mm -hmm. dabbled in penny stocks and lost money. I own a couple big name stocks, like household names that just companies who I like and believe in. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty average, middle of the road in terms of investing. I do all of my own investing. I, I generally keep everything in a spreadsheet, but I'm, I'm just very fascinated by predicting the world or forecasting what's to come. Mm-hmm. And so that really that's what captured my imagination. That's how, that is how quantitative investing or AI investing or investing with data captured my attention. Where does this passion of predicting the world come from? It's just so sad. It's just so satisfying. I don't know how to like put my finger on it, but there are very complex systems everywhere around us. And there's something really interesting about understanding how they work. And the stock market is this incredibly interesting, complex system. It's a bunch of, you know, different actors with different utility functions moving around a bunch of different assets. To me, just trying to sort that out, trying to figure out how one even looks for an edge or acquires an edge and how long an edge might last. It's just, um, I don't know, it's like a fun treasure hunt almost. On your site, you have under the vision tab, uh, the question of in the long run, is beating the market even possible? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Would you say it is, I assume? I mean, it is temp- we know it is temporarily. Mm-hmm. Is it in an indefinite way? I don't know. I actually don't know. Actually, I had a really interesting conversation this morning with our CIO, Jonathan Briggs. Mm-hmm. You know, Jonathan's thesis is that proprietary evergreen data will give you a perpetual advantage in the market. But believe it or not, there's actually a counterfactual to that. There's a thesis that says, even if you had proprietary evergreen data, somebody else would be able to reverse engineer the knowledge graph behind that data using other data that's not proprietary. There's still two points of view here. I just think it's a fascinating thought experiment. You're trying to estimate the future of data, the future of compute, machine intelligence, all these things. And you have to be able to forecast how they evolve in a totally uncertain present moment and how the in, what the interplay might be between them. And, you know, I guess maybe my, my mind likes, you know, stimulating challenges like that, but uh, I could think about that all day. Mm-hmm. You have a big machine learning component to the model, obviously. How do the mechanics work once a user begins to engage with Delphia and begins to share one's data? How do they capitalize? Yeah, so the, the big advancement at Delphia, or you know what, a brief history of how 
Wall Street quant funds work today is they use machine learning to predict stock prices. The price is the target. And the reason is really intuitive. It's because you have an observation of a stock's price every single day, so you have lots of training data, and you need lots of training data to train a machine. Now, the problem with that is that, and we realized this a few years ago, when you put the machine into the wild, when you run it live, it ends up tripping on something it's never seen before in the training, right? Something that happens to move the stock's Mm. price, like some exogenous event like a pandemic or a surprise election outcome or what have you. And the industry responded to this by essentially turning over the position. So they would place a bet on a stock and they would try to turn it over way faster. So they would sort of hedge out any exposure to these outlier events. And now if you go up and down Wall Street and talk to a quant fund, you know, there's like the high frequency group, but the two sigmas are really like they're still turning over their positions now in about five days, which is very fast. Delphia, we've gone the other direction. So my partner, Jonathan, his big insight was, well, is there something that's more stable than a stock's price, but that is still kind of co-integrated with price, which led him to fundamentals. Every company has fundamentals. And you have, if you believe that Benjamin Graham quote that in the short run markets are a voting machine, but you know, in the long run, they're a weighing machine. And so economic outcomes do matter. Markets reward the winners and, and punish the losers. Well, then fundamentals are maybe the right target. And you could point the machine at fundamentals instead, which seems like super intuitive. But the challenge is you only get an observation of a company's fundamentals every 90 days when they have an earnings announcement. So you have to be able to fill in the gap in between earnings announcements. You've got to synthetically create an expectation of the fundamentals for any given point in time. And so Delphia does this. We make predictions about 3,000 companies and about their fundamentals. And a fundamental is like Netflix sales, for example. And if you double click on that, you might end up in some set of KPIs, key performance indicators, you know, like subscribers, time on site, churn, whatever the case may be. And so user data or consumer data is very useful in predicting those KPIs, which allow us to make a more confident fundamental prediction. Does it matter where the investors are located? Are you guys global? Right now, we're very U.S.-focused, right? So we're forecasting U.S. equities, and therefore U.S. person's data is more meaningful to us. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that these companies don't also derive sales in other markets. The U.S. market does represent, in often cases, a large fraction of their sales. And so we're okay with just that sample for now. Okay. And so you pull data and you pull things like Amazon purchase history, Robinhood trading data, social media activity, and this helps retail investors compete against big institutional players. Is there anything else someone would need to know to understand how this app works on a deeper level? And if someone is more concerned about sharing this kind of data with Delphia, how do you get over that hump? Yeah, my my hope is that people don't actually need to know very much at all, right? My hope is that people can understand an index fund, right? They understand that they're used to buying an index fund that has an objective, to do average returns of the market. And the reason an index fund is such a popular concept is you get hundreds, if not thousands of stocks in one fund. So you get broad exposure to the market. Delphi is providing the exact same thing, which is hundreds, if not thousands of stocks in a portfolio. The only difference is the objective. Whereas an index fund is trying to do average returns, Delphi's objective is to do above average returns. And all that means is that we're gonna change the weighting ever so slightly between the individual stocks. We're going to put a little more emphasis in places that we think are undervalued, a little less emphasis in places we think are overvalued. That's it. That's all you need to think about. 
You don't need to be good at guessing stocks. You don't need to know which ones are going to win or lose. We're going to take care of all that. But to your second point, you do need to be prepared to contribute data. And there is definitely two camps. There is a camp of people who are ready to use their data like an asset, right? They want to use all of the assets at their disposal to build their wealth. And then there's a camp of people who are very privacy concerned and would not want their data in a whole new place. They feel they've got enough exposure already, so why add another piece to the surface area? And I think the truth is, all we can do is build trust over time. The reason I say we're an asset manager for data and dollars is because an asset manager has this fiduciary obligation to you, which is like, got a legal definition to it, right? We're trying to be good stewards of your data. And I just think given enough time, if you will see that that is true, you know, more and more people will consider it. You know, on the site, it says your first decision is whether or not you trust us. And perhaps there just isn't that much risk in in sharing one's privacy. And, and perhaps folks don't fully understand what the actual risk is. So maybe that's the piece that you need to educate folks on. That's true. We're going to need to educate people on what is the real risk here. And the risk is a data breach. The, the bottom, you know, the bottom line is that's what people would be concerned about is Delphi is susceptible to a breach. And there's no technical reason why it's impossible. We don't live in the era yet where concepts like federated machine learning have been rolled out in production across all phones. And just for those listening, that just means that your data, you know, we can train a model on your data, but it never has to leave your phone. We never have to pull it into the cloud. Uh, we're just not there yet. One day we will be. So for the moment, you are relying on Delphia to be good at storing data and ensuring that there's no breach. And we hold ourselves to standards that I would say are higher than even a bank's standards, but there's no guarantee that it's impossible. And so if the consequence of a breach for you is so significant that you just can't risk it, I mean, beyond Delphia, there's probably a number of services that you should consider not using in that case. What are some of the major challenges you're facing as you scale up? Is it you know regulatory in nature? Is it those conditions? Is it the market specifically? Is it competition? What are the key barriers here? I think you touched on it earlier. Like one of the key barriers is comprehension. We're teaching people to invest with their data and they've never heard that before. And just having people wrap their head around the idea that, hey, if you have a phone, you're an investor, consider or look at every app on your phone like an asset. And we can turn that data into a renewable source of capital for you. That's literally all we're trying to get done right now. Now, to do that, there's a ton of building blocks beneath the surface, one of which, you're right, is regulatory. So we are doing this, in a, you know, we are regulated by the SEC as an investment advisor. You know, we're about to launch a new SEC registrant, which is to say we're going to have two investment advisors just to sort of separate a couple of different concerns. It's quite a big build, and you have to walk a very fine, fine line to make sure that you're doing this in a way that is above board is conscientious of what can be gleaned from the data, what risks the data poses, all of that. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about your background because I found it so interesting. I mean, you have such a colored background as an entrepreneur. You've been involved in hotels. You've been involved in, in camps. You've been a speaker coach. You've been in software prior. Uh, you've sold a couple companies to Shopify. It's really impressive, but I think it's hard to kind of understand your trajectory as an entrepreneur. So I'm just curious, like, how did you arrive here at Delphi? I mean, it's in, in, in so far, it's been an incredible story. You guys have raised close to 80 million 
backed by some very notable investors. So congrats. But how do you sum this up? I mean, how did you get here? I honestly think it's just curiosity. I just have a really insatiable curiosity. And, you know, I identify more as an entrepreneur than a tech entrepreneur. And so I've been starting companies since I was 16 years old. It just so happens that, you know, technology is my favorite sandbox to play in now because the design space is so massive. And so it's, uh, if you like to build systems, it's a, it's a wonderful place to conceive of a business, but it's also high stakes and high stress. And so you're right in between my last tech venture and this tech venture, I gave myself a little reprieve and, you know, did some entrepreneuring that was, I would say a little bit more, a little easier, a little easier, uh, started a hotel, as you mentioned, which was the only project I think I've ever delivered on time and on budget, you know, invented a card game, started a fashion line, did some film projects. I think I just have, uh, like I said, a very insatiable curiosity and, and, a, and a strong desire to go from zero to one and just make things and then look back at it and go, oh, that was easier than I anticipated or, you know, harder than I anticipated or some kind of learning curve. Delphia is definitely the biggest swing I've taken. I went in eyes wide open. Uh, I, I knew this would cost me a lot and it has, but it's also like very satisfying because if it works, it is the kind of project that could leave uh, a huge imprint behind it could it could survive me which is sort of, sort of was my criteria for my next venture when you say it's cost you a lot is that beyond finances do you feel like it's it's cost you uh in terms of stress level uh an emotional toll how would you describe it yeah i mean i, I was married at the start of the project that's that's one definitely from a health perspective you know physical health perspective the mental load is non-trivial and you know, my family and my friends are being very patient with me. Many of them haven't heard from me in years and they're good, you know, they're good friends and, uh, my family does not see a lot of me. And so it's not a sustainable pace. I kind of gave myself seven years to go through the, the hard part and then achieve a greater level of sustainability on the other side of that. And I'm five years in out of the seven. So definitely feeling the cost in certain places. You know, you've done a TEDx talk on this topic of stories, quoting your stories are going to kill us. And this idea of sort of commitment to rewriting one's story, I think is a really intriguing concept, certainly one that, that's unique and you don't hear that often. But this is essentially what you're doing and you have a history of this. Mm -hmm. So what sort of story are you hoping to write through this chapter at Delphia? Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way before. I think this is for me a legacy project, if I'm honest, right? So if I, if I can do this and it can survive me, that's the thing I'm leaving behind, right? So with Delphia, my appetite is not really to sell the company ever. It's to run it till I'm old and gray and then hand it off to the next person. Because I, I do truly believe that data will be the currency of the digital age and that we're going to need to give people a way to turn data into capital if they're going to have a road to prosperity. I just can't see us getting there using our labor in 20 years. People need assets and we need to come up with more of them. And so this is for me like a, a chance to, to have an impact and leave something behind. How do you square that with the typical venture capital agenda of say a 10x return mm -hmm. on a portfolio investment? As you described this, right, you, you, you want to grow this until you're old and gray, never sell it. Mm -hmm. How do you talk to your VCs about that? Well, you, you know, there's opportunities for liquidity along the way. Um, mm -hmm. You know, new people join your cap table, other people peel off, you can take the company public. I still think you can create liquidity events. Obviously, Delphi has a token as well as of recently. And so they're pretty good about 
having patience, right? They knew when they invested, they were investing in something that was aiming for a, you know, a, a trillion dollar business. And it's just kind of one of those things where I'm upfront about, you know, once you write the check, we're swinging for the fences and I don't really know that I'm going to burn the ships along the way, put it that way. Right. <laughs> so we haven't left ourselves a lot of, you know, escape routes, if you will. Uh, if this doesn't work, we're sort of going for it. And in the event we come up short, you know, we will at least feel really good that we left it all in the field. Is this your personal playbook, Andrew, that you're running? Or is there a company playbook from the past that you admire and or an entrepreneur founder that you've kind of looked up to and admired along the way? Well, I mean, this is a controversial answer to that question. I have a ton of respect for Elon uh, as an entrepreneur and that burn the ships mentality that he has taken along the way with Tesla or SpaceX or what have you. It's controversial because he's in the news right now with all these uh, you know free speech concerns and whatnot. I'm going to set that aside for a minute and just say that as a systems thinker, he's incredible, but he also approaches it as though there's there's no other choice, right? There there either is or is not, and there's not it's not a gradient. Conversely, I actually have had the chance to work with another brilliant systems thinker, which or work for I should say, which is Toby Luke at Shopify. Toby's just brilliant as a systems thinker and and has a very sustainable approach to entrepreneurship. You know, it's, uh, he makes progress year over year, generally has good boundaries around work life. And so it's good to hold up both examples. I think my business partner, Cameron, our CTO, he's much more like Toby. And so we, we counterbalance each other well. So you spent, I think, close to seven months right at Shopify post Jet Cooper acquisition, was it? Yeah, it was a cup of coffee. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a nice cup of coffee still. <laughs> I, I think folks would would ask you, notwithstanding the the short time there, what were your key takeaways, moments, experiences working with Toby, working with Shopify? I was given a mandate to effectively disrupt the mothership. So Shopify was almost entirely an e-commerce play at that point in time and wanted to break into physical retail. Hadn't really, point of sale was just coming out, but it was, they hadn't really broken into that market in a major way just yet. And, you know, Toby, to his credit, gave me this mandate and said, can you figure it out? Can you figure out how to effectively cannibalize our core business? Which I loved as a challenge. You know, he had an interesting way of equipping me to go after the challenge. I think I had one resource at the time. (laughs) I had to really like fight for resources. I had one person. And so it forced a lot of ideation, a lot of hypothesis validation, et cetera. I remember at one point, you know, I thought I had come up with a really good strategy, you know, we'll to kind of go about it. And I vetted that strategy through all the folks above me, Harley, Craig Miller, people who are very smart in their own right, all of whom said, yep, it's ready for Toby. I took that strategy to Toby's office one day, and I think it took him about like seven or eight minutes to actually find the weak point in the strategy. And just the whole thing crumbled right in front of my eyes. I remember it was so impressive. I'd been thinking about this thing for months and I had completely missed this weak spot. And he picked it out in about eight minutes. And it was at that point that I knew I was just, you know, needed to play at another level. You raised a seed in late 2019, then a 60 million A round this past June. Given the market climate currently, do you feel like you raised this most recent round at just the right time? Oh, yeah. We've we've been told unequivocally that we timed it better than anybody. We gave a sneak peek to the Multicoin folks. I think it was in December. And we actually got to a term sheet with them by end of January 2022. We closed in May and it took a little while longer, largely on account of the the way we had designed the token. It's not designed in the traditional sense where you have sort of a max supply 
you know, it's um, technically an infinite number of token can be created. Equilibrium is achieved a little bit differently at Delphia. Because of that, the fine print took a little longer to, to iron out. So now having notched close to 80 million in total, mm-hmm. let's say, what have you learned about raising capital? And is there anything you would have wished you knew going into the VC process that you can share with other founders thinking about going this route? There's two things. One is more pragmatic and I think applicable to a broader number of entrepreneurs. And then one is sort of maybe just acute to Delphia and a few others. But the one that's applicable is, you know, you're looking to fit someone's thesis. And I think that often gets lost, right? We we think about reputable VCs. We think about where they are in their funds deployment. We don't spend the time to explore where they have a thesis and whether we are in you know contradiction to that thesis or or we support that thesis. It's a matching exercise, right? Venture capitalist and entrepreneur is a matching exercise. And the, the more time you can spend uncovering what the VC's thesis is, the better the exercise for you. And so it just so happened that Tushar Jane at Multicoin, one of the general partners there, had a thesis on data DAOs that had certain properties to it that Delphia fit quite nicely. And that's largely what got that deal to come together. The other bit of advice is like, if you're trying to sell a really big vision, I've learned along the way, even though they would like to be ready for it, venture investors, I think you, I don't think you can take them further than like two years out into the future. I used to talk to VCs about 20 years out into the future, and it largely did a disservice to the process in my experience. And so I had to learn to sort of change my analogies and change my comparables and sort of work in a shorter horizon just so people could you know, wrap their head around it and gauge how far along we were, et cetera. How far out are you guys as a company looking in terms of the macroeconomic climate right now? Like as you stare down, you know, the, the barrel of inflation, interest rates, et cetera, how are you thinking about this equation? I'm mostly in 2025 in my head uh, on a day-to-day basis. Maybe like fall 24 is sort of where I, I started thinking about what the world will look like, which is to say I'm treating 2023 almost like a write-off. And I'm trying to make an estimation around when VCs are going to start to deploy meaningful capital again and how. And I mean, it's going to also coincide with likely a, a leveling out of these interest rates as well, which should affect a repricing of tech once again. And so uh, I don't try to be too cute with this whole type of prediction. Mostly I just count in what is the number of fundraising seasons I'm going to be alive for and how many of those are going to be really difficult and how many of those are going to be, you know, maybe a little easier. That's kind of the calculus I'm doing. So in terms of deployment of meaningful capital, as you say, are you guys good for the foreseeable future? I mean, if 2023 is a write-off, do you care? There are some important assumptions in our model that if they don't crack our way, we're probably flying too close to the sun. You know, we have a world-class asset management team that's not inexpensive to put together. We just staffed up from, you know, 40 people to 90 people because we're now about to build a whole series of product features that help people explore the data and really get value from it. And so, you know, we're running at a high burn. We also have a stochastic revenue stream, right? Most of our revenue is derived from the performance fees we take on accredited investor capital. And so when you're performing really well, that looks incredible, but it's not as stable as monthly recurring revenue. And so, you know, there are stretches where you can perform poorly and in quant or in quantitative investing or quant funds, even a six month flat stretch is to be expected at some point in the life cycle of a given strategy. When we hit that is also going to be impactful uh, to our runway and everything else. And so 
I'd say Delphia is still being aggressive in its pursuit of the opportunity, but we're right on the cusp of too aggressive is sort of how I'd articulate it. And the 90 employees or so, um, these are across some pretty expensive cities, Toronto, New York, San Francisco, London, not the cheapest places in the world to live. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are folks, you have this ramp up from 40 to 90. These are folks that you've described um, having a significant amount of, of crypto experience. Is that correct? Some. So we're, we're actually increasing our, our DNA in that category right now. That's really a focus for us. So, you know, two, three years ago, we started to increase our competency in asset management. We brought in people who had never been part of a tech venture before, but had grown up in asset management and quant. Maybe a year ago, we started doing that with uh, with crypto. We started to sort of retrain some of our top performers internally and bring in some experts from outside. And, you know, we're getting to a pretty good place now. I put a pin in something that I wanted to come back to. So this idea of matchmaking with VCs Mm. and finding the right VC for your company. So you have this sort of philosophy with respect to building a team that says you only like to employ people you yourself would work for. Mm -hmm. And that just makes intuitive sense. Uh, Do you feel like this sort of mantra principle would apply to selecting a venture partner? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I've got a, I've got a fantastic board and I'm a little bit old school. I'll definitely compromise on price or valuation, I should say, to get the better partner. Or maybe that's not old school. Maybe that's just good hygiene. I don't know. But I, I, you know, my strong preference is for the right people at the table with diverse perspectives, uh, but who are very supportive and who are aligned to the outcome that the founders are chasing. And um, the reason for that is that you can get cute with your valuation, but at the end of the day, you're going to go through a bunch of really tough moments in any startup's life cycle. And those can be an order of magnitude more difficult if you've got some form of internal politics on top of that, right? The external environment is hard enough. You need everybody on the inside to be rowing in the same direction. You yourself went from being Toronto-based to now being in New York. Mm -hmm. Why did you make that decision to go to New York? For those that don't know, Delphia manages money for the average person, but we also manage, you know, institutional capital as well. And institutions tend to invest in large check sizes, you know, 50, 100, sometimes 250 million. It's just not the kind of check size that you find in Canada that often. You'll find it often in New York. And it's also the kind of check size that's a little bit difficult to sort of just parachute in, shake a hand, kiss a baby and get done. When you're talking to people about those uh, that quantum of investment decision, it's one where you really want to be around in a pinch to go for a walk, to have a lunch, to whatever the case may be. And so that's why I moved to New York is that somebody had to do it on on behalf of the team and I was the most able uh, and, probably, and probably the right person to be doing it. What I love about New York, and I wish Toronto had this property, when I talk to people in Toronto about Delphia and what we're trying to do and the mission, I get this reaction every time, which is, it's almost like awe. That sounds really big. And in New York, you tell people about Delphia and they go, oh, I get it. You know who you need to talk to? You need to talk to this person. And there's like hmm. two introductions they've got ready for you in a moment later to people who can absolutely move the needle on the business. It's almost like they've uh, adjusted, better calibrated to ambition. Ambition is not awe-inspiring. It's sort of status quo for them which I like, right? Because then we can start to de-risk the ambition much faster together. 
I just think it's also a great place to recharge one's ambition. You know, you, you use that word, but I always feel like it's a great place to go when I'm feeling like as if I was an iPhone running at 75%, I want to recharge to 100%. I'm going to go to New York. Totally. Come back four days later and feel completely rejuvenated. So switching gears quickly, I'll ask you about competition. These names that folks write about, so Galaxy Digital Oriente, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name correctly, Wealth Simple may or may not be in this mix here. Do you view these folks as competitors or do you view your competitor set as just completely different than the way the media is sort of writing about your competition? Yeah, I think so. We, we view BlackRock as our competitor, quite hmm. honestly. BlackRock is a massive asset management business. Biggest in the world, I think. Yeah, biggest in the world. Right. And, and our bet is that the next biggest asset management business in the world is going to have an affordance for managing data. And the reason is simple. It's because a data set is the sort of atomic unit of good prediction and good prediction is what leads to better returns. And so asset management as a category can't afford to look past that opportunity. Maybe it's not Delphia, maybe it's somebody else after us. Uh, but yeah, we see more like a BlackRock as a, or, you know, maybe Millennium as like the next stop in terms of competition. You mentioned in your TED talk that you have, you know, a background, this goes back many, many years mm -hmm. to your childhood, but uh, you were into cigarettes, skateboards, and petty crimes, you say. <laughs> <laughs> then you got into selling drugs. Yeah. And then you're given a second chance. Mm. So what was that story? And what was that second chance? Uh, it's simpler than I think most people realize. It's just like, as a young person, for whatever reason, I end up being uh, like a target and went a good stretch of my high school life without a friend circle. And so then, you know, you start to conceive of ways to manufacture a friend circle and being indisposable to a group of people is one way of doing that. Right. And so in high school, being indisposable to a group of people largely means providing them with like, I don't know, some sort of drugs. That was my solution to how to find friends. It was a stupid solution, but nevertheless, anyway, it all, the bubble popped on that when I was 18 and, uh, I'm glad it did. Um, but it just sort of forced me to channel all that entrepreneurial energy into a different direction. And, uh, I'm sincerely glad that I, uh, I don't have uh, greater scars to show for that period of time. I also don't know that I'd trade the experience quite honestly. It was, it was very character forming for me. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs. I think a lot of founders can relate to the story, certainly relate to having challenges in childhood, different sort of personal barriers to jump over. What's the next chapter for you in Delphia? Yeah, it's going to sound a little silly, but really in 2023, Delphia has to turn into an app that most people have heard of or know somebody who uses. Just like that's the, that's the litmus test by the end of the year. How we accomplish that is all we are focused on right now. And it Again, you know, our bet is that it's not from teaching people about quantitative investing or AI investing. Our bet is that it's going to happen from people uh, learning to explore their data and, and use it to create value in their lives. And so we're interested in tighter feedback loops that give people that awareness. And then, and then you know, on the asset management side, we've got a big research bet going right now that if it works out, it's a whole new frontier. So that really the benefit of, of an index fund or a quant strategy is you have a a cross section of stocks, right? You have many hundreds or thousands of names in a portfolio. And so your risk is spread out across all these bets. And these statistical properties are really helpful. But what it generally means is that you don't have a rich or deeper rich understanding of any name beyond a certain point, right? There's sort of like a breadth versus depth. It's hard to do both, essentially. If I had to pick, breadth wins most of the time. 
but marrying the two is a bit of a holy grail. Hmm. And it's actually what Delphi is going after on the research side in 2023. We have the right people at the table for it. If we can pull it off, you know, watch out. But it's, you know, it's a low probability bet. Right now, we're really good at the breadth side of things. And we want to marry that with like a, a really intimate understanding about each company. Andrew, it's a phenomenal story so far. Wishing you all the best heading into the new year. Delphia.com for those who want to learn more about Delphia. D-E-L-P-H-I-A.com. Delphia.com. Andrew, where else can people follow you guys? Where else can people follow you specifically on social? Yeah, I mean, Delphia's got a Discord under the same name, D-E-L-P-H-I-A. Our Twitter account, same spelling. And then me personally, not to confuse the issue, but seven letters starts with a D. Uh, Drew Peek, D-R-U-P-E-E-K. Find me on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate the time. You too. Thanks, Adam. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. DC, I host the rock podcast, Back to the Arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interviews. Electric Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.